Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we recently went to the polls and voted to decriminalize marijuana. So if you thought we were a totally lame city, you are now officially and legally incorrect. Smoke them if you got them, folks, which is by no means meant to be an endorsement of any illegal activity, just to be clear there. Uh, you can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, and streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio are my fellow doubtcasters, teen pop sensation Justin Schieber. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and the ailing but still here, Doctor Professor Luke Gatlin. My voice is deeper because I'm being Jeremy as well as myself. Uh, uh, sounds wow. terrible, man. <laughs> I made it here. It's it's very dramatic, though. We appreciate that. Uh, Jeremy Bean is not here. Coming up in today's show, we've got a polyatheism just in time to bum you out for Thanksgiving, or as they call it in other parts of the world. American Thanksgiving. We'll suffer the little children in counter-apologetics. We've got some props. But first, despite how much our libertarian listeners complain about it, we haven't actually talked a lot of politics uh, that much lately. And, of course, when I say politics, I'm using air quotes because this is about electoral politics and not what I would call, you know, actual politics. Was there some sort of political event recently? In fact, there was. Um, on November 6th, Americans went to the polls and exercised their right to vote. And along with, of course, re-electing Barack Obama, surprising very few people. And exercised a machine's right to change their vote. Yes. There, well, there was certainly some of that, too. <laughs> um, Nate Silver nailed it. Uh, Barack Obama won both the um, popular and the electoral vote. Uh, we also, here in the United States, did some pretty radical things like legalizing marijuana in two states, approving gay marriage in four states, and tossing out on their asses multiple rape apologists. Mm. Turns out, not a good strategy to winning an election. Um, <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> so um, some really interesting things. And, of course, here we'll be talking about um, how that relates to uh, you and I, the unaffiliated, uh, non-religious voter. But first, um, one issue that comes up every uh, year or every four years, depending on how much you care about elections, is many people out there go and vote in churches and other various religious uh, buildings. Uh, do either of you vote in churches? I do not. I vote in a Catholic church gymnasium. Do you really? Oh, in the yes, gym. I even snapped a picture of the cross on the wall and their little motto, like, you know, believers in Christ or something like that, yeah. that, that looms over the voting machines. 
Oh, nice. Yeah. And now the the church I go to to vote in is we vote in like the the nursery area or like commons area with the nurseries around. I'm not exactly sure what it's used for because I don't go there. But um, they tend to be pretty good. They don't have signage up. They don't have any moral messages. I I've heard from other people, including um, Jeremiah Bannister. Um, who hosts Paleo Radio, the church he goes to is a Catholic church, and they have all sorts of pamphlets out there and anti-abortion stuff uh. and so forth um, when people are going in to vote. Hmm. But my question is, and this is to you, Luke, since you're the expert on this sort of thing, is how much effect does voting in a church actually have on the way people vote? As, uh, every good social scientist always says it depends. It depends – on um, the studies that we've done, you know, obviously it's not so easy to set up a, a realistic voting study. You have to wait until the elections roll around. Yeah. But they've have the, there have been studies done that compare different precincts, you know, that have locations either in a school or like a secular place, uh, or a church or something like that, or a civic center. And there, it seems that there, there's a consensus that it can have a statistical effect if, for example. The issues on the ballot are somehow related to okay. that place. So like if there's an education millage on the ballot, like raising taxes to pay for schools, the polling places that are at schools approve at a higher rate than the ones that are not schools. Now, now and this is perhaps something that's not covered in the study, but I'm wondering, uh, people who are voting at schools, oftentimes you know, your precinct is near your home. So these are people who live – nearby the school. Might it just be that fact that the school is part of their very local community than, um, than the place where they're voting? That's a good uh, point, although some of the other studies haven't looked at just schools but are issues that have to do with like what we're talking about, like with religion. You know? right, so there right. are studies that show that voting, if you have people fill out their measures in a chapel or something like that as a, compared to a, a secular institution that they've, you know, they approve more of, of moral type you know, values, issues there. So I think the general consensus is that that there is a, and I've talked about this on the show before, the terms like priming effect. There's a subliminal priming right. effect of location, building, stimuli in the, in the area on people's preference. Now, is it enough to push, you know, I'm sure most people are thinking there's, what am I, turned into an automaton if I walk into a church? Mm-hmm. Do I suddenly turn, you know, a, a religious conservative values voter? No. But there's, there are people in the middle who are influenceable who might not be, have right, formulated right. views on any issue. Yeah, yet. it's, it's that weird group of f- people who walk in to vote and haven't really decided how they're going to vote yet, which is, I, I guess it's not that weird when it comes to things like ballot proposals. A lot of people go in to vote and maybe they, they know who they're voting for president, but they don't, they haven't read the ballot proposals. They don't care about this. Right. So that may be where we're seeing an effect. Yeah. I, you know, uh, it's probably the, the people that are more easily swayable in the, in the middle there. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, so I'm wondering, uh, how much of it would be that and then how much of it would be It'd be interesting to see some kind of number on the relationship between um, certain voting districts and their voting places mm-hmm. and the relationship of the demographic of people in that community. Yeah. So you have to you know control for that because exactly. some places like how, that are how more likely possibly to be – do that, you know? Yeah, some places that are more likely to be conservative might vote more often right. at – Right, which would, which would uh, church. You know, fill in that kind, of, that kind of bias that, you know – 
might not be accounted for in, in yeah. the priming. Yeah, this is a tough study to to pull off cleanly. Yeah, most of the uh, the ones that are not uh, that that can be done in a controlled way, where they like assign people randomly to you vote in a religious context, you vote in a non-religious context. Mm-hmm. Those are, that would be the gold standard, and those right. studies do show an effect. But but then you have, have to set up a fake election essentially, yeah. and then the stakes are not there. And then right, yeah, right. yeah. Um, because there are, of course, legal issues and, and um, groups like the Freedom from Religion Foundation are fighting um, churches that are used as ballot locations and all of that. But, you know, the question ultimately comes down to is there a demonstrable effect that we should be worried about and therefore fighting over? And it seems like there may be a, a slight one then. Yeah, there are uh, – there's – in the single digits, people, uh, when they ask the question, have you ever been urged in your place of worship to vote a particular way, mm. you get answers that are only in the single digits. Now, Whoa, there's – yeah. Really? That's very surprising. And, and we're talking maybe about – that's a, Maybe that's a self-reporting issue. So like of, right. of, of all voters, 5 percent say that they have been urged to vote in a particular way. This is according to the a, uh, people in the press poll. That's so, does, I mean, does that mean you're sitting in church on Sunday and the pastor says – you should vote for See, we this don't, candidate. We don't know because yeah. obviously yeah. let's say that somebody's very religiously inclined mm-hmm. and let's say that, uh, that they're a traditional conservative values voter. They might not consider uh, something to be pressured. What you and I would say, come on, that pastor is telling the guy to vote for right. Romney. Right, right. Telling they them might to vote say, well, pro-life and you know, using – Because right. they often use coded language or yep. voters' guides like you know, these candidates are pro-life and family. These ones are not. You choose. I mean, right, right, right. you and I would look at that and go, "Come on." <laughs> or but. they could. Uh, I mean, they could always just be saying no to protect their their that, church. That, that too. Course, they could, there yeah. could be outright deception. But the other thing, like along the lines of what we just mentioned, is if you happen to be in a very politicized, you know, uh, a church. You don't have to be told. Many of those people aren't explicitly right. told they're influenced because they're self-selected into that group to begin with. Right, right, right. You know, so there, there are – we have some data. There's some interesting questions where they, where they looked at the voters as a function of the homogeneity of where they are at. That is the, the, the proportion of people that also mm-hmm. in the same church – are likely to vote for the same candidate. Okay, and, and, so and diverse the, congregations. And the, and there is a uh, there's a gap between Romney and Obama voters in that the people who Romney voters are significantly more likely than Obama voters to attend politically homogeneous congregations and also racially homogeneous. Yes, yes, um, it, yeah. The statistics. I mean, getting to the presidential election because this is. Um, Really interesting, the findings. In fact, um, on election night, Fox News, you have Bill O'Reilly and um, ever since then, they cry out, this is not our father's America. This is not the old America. Um, and in a lot of ways, they're absolutely they're right. right. They're, the demographic changes are shifting. So I think if, if you were to summarize the, elect, the election in one word, it would be demographics. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, there are, well, we can talk about some of the details, uh, but yes, the, the things are shifting and the groups are age-wise, you know, younger voters are displacing older ones. The younger mm-hmm. voters also tend to be more diverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, minority voters right. uh, are increasing proportion and, um, you know, and, and more women voters. Mm-hmm. So all those things really, yes, yeah, so b- the, the older white male, Blue collar, that sort of thing. That that demographic is shrinking. It, it's no longer enough to win an election because, as we see from the numbers, Romney won overwhelmingly among white people. Mm-hmm. Right. 
by yeah, white older. So if you look at if you break it down by all those demographic things, basically what what Obama did to have uh, a convincing win because it wasn't just a squeaker was he built a coalition of essentially minority groups mm-hmm. Christians uh, and then the unaffiliated religiously unaffiliated right, right. so for example um his largest a third of the Obama coalition was minority Christians black asian hispanic mixed and, and, and do we know what what type of Christianity that is? It breaks down into black Protestants and okay. Hispanic Catholics are the two biggest ones. But also, you know, within the Asian group that, that essentially, uh, you know, minority Christians. And then the second biggest group for him, a quarter of the Obama voters was the unaffiliated. Uh-huh. A, a quarter of Obama voters are religiously unaffiliated. Yes. One in four were yeah. religiously unaffiliated. Now, we've talked before yeah. that the unaffiliated does include people who are religious but yet unaffiliated. Yes. Right, so about right, half right. of the unaffiliated, depending on how you define it, yeah. are religious but unaffiliated. But the other half of the unaffiliated are what we would call secular, atheists, agnostics, you know, deists, that kind of mixture. Right. Which, right. Is, which is interesting that Obama got, you know, 25% of his votes are religiously unaffiliated and yet um, – I mean, a majority of religiously unaffiliated people voted for Obama, 70%. 70%. But Romney picked up more of the religiously unaffiliated voters than McCain did in 2008. Yeah, there was an uptick yeah. for him. It wasn't huge, but yeah, so. The, and, and, or maybe I should say Obama lost five points uh, or five percent of the unaffiliated there was a slight downward tick so if that's the other thing that you just brought up was trends over time and the unaffiliated are trending more democratic although this one like you just mentioned was slightly less Mm -hmm. than what they were with the mccain election in 08 but yes if you look across the gore 2000 bush Kerry 2004 the unaffiliated is becoming increasingly democratic voting so it's gone from like 60 percent in 2000 to 70 percent now yeah i mean the democrats have at least since 2000 the democrats have because that's as far back as i have the numbers in front of me have strongly held the unaffiliated gore had 61 percent versus bush um, but now we're up to 70% for Obama and 26% for Romney. I'm wondering if some of that loss for the Democrats um, in this election, uh, I'm wondering if any of that was third-party voters or because the McCain election, thanks to Sarah Palin mm. um, and thanks to other issues that were on the ballots, religion was a much bigger part of that election. That's what I'm wondering. As opposed to this one, it was much more about economic issues, and some of our libertarian uh, non-affiliated friends may have skewed towards Romney Be- because, because of for that some fact. reason Romney felt not he didn't feel much of a need to to parade his Mormonism around. Yeah, surprisingly. <laughs> well, and, and I wonder it's, why. It's fascinating to see. Um, Christians like Victoria Jackson, yeah. um, the once almost funny Victoria Jackson, who's now a, a crazy Christian crusader, claiming that America died in this election and that um, Christians make her sick because they voted for Obama. Jeez. Well, Obama is a Christian, whereas Mitt Romney is a Mormon. So right. really, obviously, the values of Obama's Christianity are very different from evangelical mm-hmm. uh, Christian values, but still closer in some ways than Mormonism would be to um, evangelical Christians. Yeah, there were, there were fewer oh, values sure. issues on the ballot, mm-hmm. and they didn't have a red meat person like Palin on the ballot. Mm-hmm. 
the one candidate eventually doesn't Paul talk. Paul Ryan is pretty red yes. meat, but well, but he he just wasn't as big of a factor. It was still more eco- people still associate more economic than with social with him. Yeah, uh, um, and then and his economic stuff sucks. Yeah. I mean, it, it was just appalling. Well, so, so the uh, so that's probably what the downward tick is that one candidate yeah. habitually doesn't talk about his religion like Obama. The other candidate of Romney couldn't talk about his religion. Right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so that probably accounted for some of the downward trends. The Had other, this been Centorum, it would have been a very different... Yeah, yeah picture, no, you know, you're absolutely right. If it wasn't a Romney. But listen, listen to this statistic. They asked people the uh, giving... Romney or Obama, the problems that they're interested in. So they ask people like, does this candidate, and then they fill in the blank, understand the problems of poor Americans. Obama like nailed <laughs> Romney in that quiz. Uh, they asked, well, does, well, do you have the numbers on that yeah, one? So it was, um, 47%. 60, <laughs> 61% said that Obama understands poor Americans, uh, uh, 30% Romney. Um, what, the, who are those thirty percent? No, it gets better. Uh, cares about people like them. It was fifty-three Obama, forty-one Romney. Um, oh honest and trust, trustworthy. Forty-eight percent Obama is honest and trustworthy. Forty-one percent Romney. And then they asked the uh, the question, which is strong religious beliefs? And Obama was only twenty-one percent, mm. and Romney was so clearly yeah. they're not. Whoever it is that's giving these ratings is not associating caring trust. Caring about people like them, yeah, the poor, with, with religion, religion. Hmm. which is kind of a victory yeah, for us. I is. have to say that's uh, that's a good one to see happen. But the uh, the other thing that you mentioned earlier was some of the issues on the ballot, like gay marriage. Yeah. Now that you know, we've talked before on the show about how this is the trends are all demographically in the upward direction yes. across the board, and we, like you said, four out of the the four states, it was Maryland, Maine, Washington, Washington. and then Minnesota had one and that was reversed the other direction. That was worded. Banning gay marriage, people voted, but they down. voted against it. Yes, so, they, right. all, all four states voted in favor Pro of marriage equality. Gay marriage. Whereas yes. prior to this election, I think it was something like thirty-two uh, elections that where they had gay marriage on the ballot, it was always voted down, it including here in Michigan, where we voted to amend the constitution to ban gay marriage. So, in the, so clearly, the, yeah, as the if civil point. rights should be up for a vote in the first. It, well, well yeah, that's a different. Yeah, so the, <laughs> clearly the the demographics have now now there's a. a Plurality of people that say that, that gay marriage should be legal. Yes, and even but there's regional differences. So if you notice from those states, you know you could argue Maryland's a border state, but Washington, Maine, and and uh, Minnesota are all in the north. There are still strong regional differences. So if you look at the approval, not the voting, but if you, if you just ask the people in the state, do you approve of gay marriage in New England? It's like two thirds favor yeah. gay marriage. Yeah, and if they you look at it. if you look at the south, like the south central states, it's Almost the reverse. Two thirds right. disapprove. So the trend, the trend is upward across the entire country. It is even going up in the South where it even is going still up in the south a majority where, disapprove. Yeah. So right. the, the, yeah. you could describe the South now as being at what the North was maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Sure. So sure. there are all the trend lines are in the right direction, but there are still regional differences. Mm-hmm. So what we're likely to see is a patchwork in the country is sort of, you know, with looking like the red blue map of States increasingly flipping in yeah. favor of gay marriage, but starting in the north. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> not not too surprisingly there. Same thing with um, marijuana legalization or decriminalization. We had four cities in Michigan that um, voted to decriminalize. Well, three decriminalized. One just made it the lowest possible priority for police, which essentially has the same effect. So we're seeing – and even though um, – this is interesting to me. Grand Rapids, Michigan. West Michigan, very conservative, right? 
I mean, basically every elected official in West Michigan is a Republican. In fact, I had about half of my ballot was um, Republicans running unopposed. Yeah, um, <laughs> very, very red county here. And yet in Grand Rapids, Michigan, people voted to decriminalize marijuana, which says this is not a left and right Democrat Republican well, part debate. of it's also rural urban because we're a city. Right. We're a city right. in, I mean, in a yeah, rural Yeah, that's a huge area. component too. Although Grand Rapids extends quite a bit outside the city. And, and a lot of the argument being made was that, look, you don't want your tax dollars going towards this. It becomes an economic yeah, question, yeah. which is one of the ways we're seeing gay marriage being successful too, is mm. when it stops being a moral argument and starts being an economic argument of equality. And also of this, you know, marriages are good for the economy. Oh, in the for state. sure. Yeah, class. The final issue with with the um, that the demographics here is class, and yes. that you see, you saw some interesting things too. That in the there were you know white working class men went for Romney, but there was regional differences in that too. So that there were much more strongly Romney uh, white working class men in the South. Mm-hmm. Where if you looked at like. Ohio is the thing that everybody looked at. If you look at Ohio, Obama actually, you know, probably because of the auto bailout, right. was picking up a lot more. Yeah, that you was know. that was bad for Romney. Yeah, certainly. and so the the, the uh, there's an intersection with class and region as well. That the the conservatives, you know, t- again, it's, it's turning into almost a southern regional. And the, the I talked about this a couple episodes ago that the parties are purifying yeah. along lines of white. Working class, you know, less than college education, rural, southern is purifying to be almost exclusively Republican, whereas that wasn't the case, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Now, now my question to you is, Luke, this is a burning question. I don't know that I've heard anyone talk about this is how did Romney do with rich people? Um, It was (laughs) – Oh, you're kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> For a second there, if the listeners could see his face was very sincere and there was a neuron in my brain like, is he really – is that a softball? Luke, what is he? Really? Uh, really? Why so serious? Yeah, not surprisingly, we saw Romney did quite well with rich people. I mean he won absolutely outright, overwhelmingly with rich white people, with even middle class white well, people I, in, in many places. I just How read do you do with those people so dependent on the government? Yeah. I just read the stats of that question, <laughs> cares about people like me, and you made fun of that. But if you're rich, you're going to answer that cares about people like me question with yeah. Romney. Yeah, exactly. Romney does care about the, about, he the one He cares about job creators like me. Unfortunately, there's that 47% of the country that he said he didn't care about, and that uh, that did not help him terribly much in the election. The, the, the pro-abortionist <laughs> yes. tended not to do well in the election as a whole. The Well, now to be fair – like uh, notably Todd Aiken and um, Richard Murdoch, who were the two. Todd Aiken was, if you don't remember, the one who said that if it's a legitimate rape, the woman's body has uh, ways of shutting shut that, that thing. whole thing yeah. down, um, so that women who are raped don't get pregnant. Because of course, that's how biology works. If women don't want to get pregnant, um, their body makes them not. Pregnant. It turns out it shuts his campaign success down as well. It, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but the person he was running against is also Claire McCaskill. Yes, Claire McCaskill. Yeah. You're in Missouri, so. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, people tend to focus on the rape thing because it's so appalling, but I think that the other trend that's, you know, maybe nothing to do specifically with the rape issue, I can't believe we're talking about that, but Mm. is the 
that uh, rape thing, I believe one uh, one congressman said. That, that in primaries, now people are outflanking each other on the political extremes. And so the reason you have sure. guys like this is because in the Republican primaries, they defeat moderate Republican candidates. Mm-hmm. Mordock had defeated – um, Dick Luger, who was, right. you know, who was a Republican who's widely respected on both sides of the aisle for his experience, but Even not though his name enough. makes me giggle every time I hear it. Yes. So, um, the, so what you see is that because of the way that the parties are sort of polarizing, that you have conservative parties and liberal parties nominating mm-hmm. more liberal and conservative members in their primaries. Right. And then mm-hmm. meeting each other in the general election. And that's where you see these like, Elections that are like absurd. Where you remember Christine O'Donnell? We kind of made oh, fun of yeah. her. I'm not a witch. Yeah. So she had defeated a moderate in the primary, a moderate Republican who would have coasted probably yeah. to a victory. And so one of the reasons, I guess, what I'm saying is, it's easy to focus on the rape thing, but a lot of the reasons that happens is because wing nuts tend to make their way through the process earlier, and mm-hmm. so you're left with candidates that probably shouldn't in well, previous eras wouldn't have made. Yeah, their except way. then you look at the presidential election and you couldn't get two more middle of the road guys. I mean, these were guys. Who have to play to their base, though? Uh, Obama didn't have to play to his base at all. Well, Obama didn't play to his base at all. He didn't appeal uh, to people like us, but yes, he, did. he didn't play to his base. Here's what I will say about Obama: better than the Rom- Romney administration is the second Obama administration in some ways, um, and he is the best Republican president we've had since Lincoln. <laughs> so uh, that's what I'll say oh, for boy. Barack Obama. Listen, her mail directed to Dave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just a, but clearly, uh, something about Obama is registering with the religiously unaffiliated, probably because in large part, he doesn't talk about religion. It's not been a big part of his. There are people that are dissatisfied. I mean, you, we have people that, that complain about his maintenance of the Bush faith-based mm-hmm. agencies. Uh, well, and I believe money he's, to- he's mentioned God or in his, first few years had mentioned God more often than Bush did when he was in office. So and there, yes, and there, it's not that he doesn't talk about it. But he, he also mentioned unbelievers. personal. Yes, he did. One of the first times. So. In his uh, inauguration speech, he Which was kind of a big deal. After Rick Warren did a prayer. So again, <laughs> that, that not playing true. to your base is what I'm saying. And there are other right. people who, who uh, think that mentioning God in liberal churches is just as mentioning uh, – or mention God in politics in liberal churches mm-hmm. is just as bad as mentioning politics and God mixing in conservative churches too. Right, right, right. I, I would generally agree with that. I think. Yes, I, I, I would too. So um, yeah, it's interesting. And, but we are seeing that um, religious minorities – Certainly, um, much more so than we saw with um, the two Bush elections where evangelicals ruled the day in those elections. Um, now we're seeing religious minorities and the unaffiliated are really making a difference along with women and Hispanics being kind of the, the big groups that were um, – that. Turn the tide. It is a coalition, Obama. although some people are curious as to how long like a religious – like the, the atheists and agnostics are essentially in a coalition with – Hispanic Catholics, black Protestants. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, yeah. that in many cases, they make a uh, common cause for good reason, and they just did. But in other instances, like with gay marriage, they, they might not. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, that maybe it's not a, a prime issue in black Protestant and Hispanic Catholic churches that they uh, you know, are as opposed to gay marriage as white evangelicals. But right. there are differences between those. Well, I, I would say – I think in, they're significantly opposed, but, but yeah, not, not, some, not, not as much as – African-American communities are generally not known for being real pro 
gay. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, they're having an interesting discussion right now. It, I guess yeah. I, I would put it like that: is that they're they're, they're well, after Obama made his statements on gay marriage, they're having a discussion about that. That was huge. Yeah. yeah, that was it was hmm. if for nothing else, it it made a real impact on the African American community here in the United States. So, but but what you said before is that clearly the block that used to be considered monolithic of mm-hmm. white evangelical Protestants that all voted on mass identically. You can no longer win elections just with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Romney learned that lesson hard, and now, thankfully, we will never have to hear from Mitt Romney ever again because he's completely irrelevant. <laughs> what if he takes over in the, the station and buys, buys us out? So. Well, as long as he gives me a nice pension, um, mm. I'm fine with that. <laughs> now, uh, speaking of gay marriage, though, as we were just a moment ago, um, gay marriage is not just an issue here in the United States. Um, it's going on over in Europe as well. Many places in Europe, totally cool with gay marriage. Um, in France, they are moving now to uh, take up the issue of gay marriage. And uh, Joey Ratz, uh, Pope Benedict, does not like it. And um, people have amassed in the streets in France just this uh, past weekend. Uh, this article from Reuters. Tens of thousands of people joined by Catholic church leaders marched in cities across France on Saturday, that's November 17th, to protest against government plans to legalize same-sex marriage. Demonstrators holding banners with slogans such as Don't Touch Civil Marriage, All Born from Union of Man and Woman, One Father Plus One Mother uh, for All Children, that sort of thing, marched through Paris and other cities. Oh, so they didn't make any valid arguments. Okay. Right, right. Um, organizers <laughs> of this protest claimed that 200,000 people were demonstrating um, in, Fra- in uh, um, Paris uh, police say it was seventy thousand. So it's a pretty, it's a Fox News level discrepancy in numbers. <laughs> Two hundred thousand versus seventy thousand is um, yeah, yeah. pretty big. Still, I mean, seventy thousand is is a fair amount of people. Oh, sure. um, of course, in Europe, we have the Catholic Church has a strong influence on a lot of people. So while we see trends in France. Generally, they support gay marriage, but there is this noisy uh, group pushed on by the Catholic Church that are protesting. France's top prelate, says the article, Paris Cardinal André Vintois. I have no. I apologize profusely to our French speakers. Quote: Earlier this month, criticized the government for forging ahead with the plans at a time when the country faced urgent economic concerns, end quote, as if gay marriage were not also an economic issue, mm. which is foolish. And again, it's one of the ways that um, I, I think ultimately it's maybe not the, the sexiest argument to make, but I think it's the way gay marriage is going to win um, a lot of people over is simple economics. The article goes on, quote, Pope Benedict told French bishops visiting the Vatican on Saturday not to, quote, be afraid of spreading Christian teachings. Quote, in the important debates about society, the voice of the church must make itself heard relentlessly and with determination, he said. Unquote. Adding, despite the will of the people or basic human decency. <laughs> no, he didn't say that part. Um, but it's implied. You know, I, I, I've never really seen the inconsistency here. If, if someone... 
makes the distinction that needs to be made between religious marriage and civil marriage. Mm -hmm. You can protect your religious marriage as one man, one woman. The Catholic Church does not have to marry. Recognizing the the value of of respecting same-sex relationships uh, civilly. Yeah, I yeah. don't understand. I mean, maybe it's the whole, you know, the, the whole children argument, right? But that's clearly just not empirically true, right? Right. And so I, I don't know. I mean, the the argument is absurd because if gay marriage is made legal here in the United States, in France, mm-hmm. wherever, um, there are no plans to force churches exactly. to have gay weddings just because it's legal. You cannot go to, you know, in states in the United States where gay marriage is legal. You cannot go to a Catholic church and demand that a Catholic priest perform your gay wedding. Right. You, you can't do that. It's legal to get married, but that doesn't mean the churches have to do right, it. Right. They're not because obligated. There is a difference. I mean, you can get married in a church and it could be. Not a legal marriage if you don't sign a marriage certificate and all of that. Right, just like the county clerk isn't you know obligated to religiously marry you. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So uh, they just need to butt out of the conversation. That's something that puzzles I think secularists more than almost anything is that they don't understand why people who are religious who are often like against the encroachment of government want. Cannot see a separation of government from the religious institution of marriage from the civil institution of marriage. I mean, could the government tell people what to take, who to take sacraments or not? Like, you right, know, right. I mean, that would be absurd. So, if you believe that marriage is a sacred institution and a sacrament instituted by God, what does that have to do with the government? Yeah, it right. has nothing. It's to simply do with- because they use the same word, so they're just yeah. very confused. Yeah, it's you're not protecting your way of life. You're not. Um, defending children by saying that because part of the the friend, the law they're looking at in France would also allow, allow gay adoption, right? Um, and that arguably may be an even um, bigger thorn in the flesh of the Catholic Church to say that um, mm. gay people can get married. We've seen that in ish, or uh, that gay people can adopt children because God knows that that will only lead to more gay children. Um, and dens of iniquity and so forth. <laughs> yeah. So um, it, it seems from what I'm reading, and perhaps our, our French listeners can let me know, but it looks like um, this law is likely to pass in France despite the very noisy um, Catholic and conservative uh, voices decrying it. But it's um, expected to get a vote in mid 2013. So we'll look forward to see how that plays out. Best um, of luck. Yeah, absolutely. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter apologetics. We have talked about the relationship between theism and ordinary morality in many different ways on this show. We've talked about, um, you know, philosophical concerns about claims about how secularists, people who don't have a belief in a god, right, uh, that they don't have a philosophical grounding for. We just, have no basis for right. There's no philosophical basis for having moral obligations in any real sense. Right. Um, Which is hogwash. That's but a it's yeah. An it's, it's a very, we encounter daily. It's a very popular 
belief and and I mean like you know popular thinking also associates with religion with with morality and they see religious authorities as as authorities on moral issues as well. Recently I came across an article though titled Atheism and the Basis of Morality by Stephen Mateson. Now Mateson in this article doesn't actually argue for atheism atheism's ability to ground ordinary morality. He argues that ordinary morality only makes sense if we presuppose atheism. So he says that if we have a belief in theism, that that alone completely undermines uh, any real sense of ordinary morality. So the complete opposite argument. Now, it's a really, really interesting argument. So I want to walk us through this here. Now, he starts off by defining theism uncontroversially as that there is a God that exists with perfect knowledge, perfect power, which means that he can do anything logically possible, Mm -hmm. and perfect goodness. He starts his argument by stating a very obviously true claim, that somewhere in the world right now, a child is experiencing terrible suffering, you know, that the child both doesn't want and doesn't deserve. Of course, if God exists, he knows about the suffering, he has the power to prevent it, and yet he allows the child to suffer for some unknown reason to us. Mm-hmm. Now, Stephen argues that if God allows the suffering for any reason other than that the child will ultimately benefit from it, right. that he's not acting perfectly. That is, he's exploiting the child um, and exploiting is always wrong. Mm-hmm. So this is, a, this is a key premise in the argument. That so if, for example, a, a child is suffering... That it must um, be for that child's it, benefit. Right. It can't be that... The parents then learn a valuable lesson right, um, right, or right. the community rallies around the child. It brings them closer together. It must benefit the child who's suffering. Exactly. Okay. So he says uh, – he writes, to put it mildly, there's something less than perfect about letting a child suffer terribly for the primary benefit of someone else, mm-hmm. whether for the benefit of a bystander who gets a hero's chance to intervene or for the benefit of a child abuser who gets to exercise his unchecked free will. What about for religious people who suggest that it's the principle of free will that God allows suffering and he can't alter that then? That's that's the – he's saying that the, that would be an example of exploitation. So if God lets the, the fixed law of free will that, hey, you humans are going to do what you want and if that includes hurting each other, that's your choice, not mine, that, that to allow that to continue for a child would be Well, OK. So here – he goes on. He says, if you doubt the previous sentence, consider whether you would dream of a child uh, – whether you would ever dream of letting a child you love suffer abuse in order to secure one of those benefits. So, I mean, imagine if you see a child suffering but you're like, ah, I'm going to let that child continue to suffer Whatever doesn't kill simply you makes because you stronger. I want to respect this guy's free will mm. or I want, to re- I want to encourage this guy to act heroically and learn a valuable lesson of right, some sort. Right. Um, so that's that he's he's putting all his chips on on this argument that that this kind of exploitation is is clearly wrong. Now, a possible objection at this point would be that it isn't always wrong to exploit people because for example, let's say that a child contracts a deadly and contagious disease, wouldn't we be justified in quarantining that child against their will if it is the only or best way to protect others? Now, of course, this would be at the expense of the child, so it's an exploitation. Secondly, don't we perform triage? 
letting some patients suffer so that we can attend to more urgent cases. Hmm. Or in a war situation, we might focus medical supplies on those that we know can be helped uh, to maximize the good that we do. Right. And the answer to this is yes, of, of course, we would be justified in exploiting in, exploiting in that way, uh, allowing those kinds of suffering. But as, as Mason points out, we are only justified in doing that because we have limitations on both our power and our knowledge. And our resources. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, if we had no limitations on our power and knowledge, uh, performing triage or quarantining a suffering child would certainly not be justified. Mm-hmm. God has no such limitations, so he has no excuse for exploiting, even if we unfortunately sometimes do have the excuse. Right. So again, the, the claim here is, that God can't possibly allow a child's intense, undeserved, and involuntary suffering unless that suffering is necessary or optimal for that very child's benefit. Hmm. Now, another possible objection would be that, what about later compensation? Right? So, what if God uh, ensures that the Reparations. child will, will have an awesome life later on? Couldn't that justify his permitting the child to suffer now? Right. Well, FDR suffered polio as a child so that he could be president as an adult. <laughs> right, right. Uh, of course, the answer to this would be no. Uh, it can't. Um, it can't just be the case that the suffering of that child gets compensated by some great good in later life, because compensation is not the same thing as justification. Mm-hmm. I can compensate you uh, for. For doing, too har- for doing harm to you, mm-hmm. and our courts can assist in that process. But my compensating you would never actually justify my harming you in the first place. Right. Um, it doesn't take back the, the harm. It, right, right. And so, you know, per- okay, so perhaps I knew that you were planning on murdering somebody. Mm-hmm. So I broke into your house and stole your guns in order to prevent you from doing harm to others. Um. In, in other words, my harming you, my taking of your property, was necessary or optimal for preventing an even worse harm, sure. you murdering people. Right. Now, my act there would be justified, but that's only because it was necessary in order to thwart a worse harm, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Assuming I didn't have access to authorities or, or some other right. means. Um, now, if we go back to the God story, God's compensating the child for their suffering would never justify God's choosing not to protect that child from suffering in the first place. So the only thing that justifies God in permitting suffering is if that suffering, again, was necessary or optimal for that child's benefit. There needs to be a necessary relationship between the suffering and its bringing about some greater good in some way. Otherwise, God can't justifiably allow that kind of suffering. So another example of this would be, Parents couldn't justifiably allow strangers to jam needles into their children's arm, causing them to cry, unless, of course, the strangers were actually pediatricians, and that shot was a vaccination, mm-hmm. which would be necessary for the child's uh, net benefit. Um, but, I mean, if Dave were to poke his kids with needles and then compensate them later by taking them out to ice cream, nobody would <laughs> think that his needle poking was justified by the ice cream drip. Right, right. Again, compensation. Especially because I only have dirty needles. <laughs> right. So again, compensation is not the same as justification. Um, and so the problem becomes this. You know, the point that I've already pointed out that God can't allow a child's 
intense, undeserved, involuntary suffering unless it was necessary for that for that child's benefit. Mm-hmm. The problem is this: children all over the world are experiencing in, intense, undeserved, and involuntary suffering. Mm-hmm. And what does common morality tell us about situations like this? What does ordinary morality tell us? It says that, well, we it compels us to act compassionately towards these children. We have a duty to prevent their suffering, at least insofar as we can do so without very significant risk to ourselves. Right. Without causing, causing suffering to others. Right, or right. ourselves, yeah. Um, this suffering is bad for them, so clearly that's a good reason to act compassionately. But now let's step into the theistic worldview. All of a sudden things start to change in a very strange way. We've already established that God, if he exists, can't possibly allow a a child's intense suffering unless the suffering is necessary for that child's optimal benefit. Mm -hmm. So we may not be able to see how this is the case, of course, but if God exists, it must be the case. So Maiden asks the next logical question, what happens to that moral duty that we thought we had to prevent their suffering? Mm -hmm. It completely disappears. Right, because if God is making them suffer, he's doing so for a reason. Right. Therefore, isn't it the moral thing to follow God's will? Right. To is, prevent, this, is this the argument? Yeah, yeah, okay. essentially. To prevent that child's suffering under theism is to deprive that child of that divinely sanctioned net benefit. Mm. To the theist, they would be doing the child a disservice by interrupting their suffering, essentially destroying the future benefits that God had in place for them. Um, and so it appears that theism can't be squared with one of the most obvious of moral truths, um, the clear and obvious duty to help suffering innocent children. If theism fails to account for this duty, it really seems difficult to see how it could account for the vast majority yeah. of just basic moral duties. Um, now, clearly theists are generally compassionate people, though. Right. They are quick to help suffering children. Um, their actions imply, though, that they haven't really thought about the implications of their worldview. Might I playfully suggest that this is a kind of atheistic presuppositionalism? <laughs> Theists really know that God doesn't exist. Their actions clearly demonstrate this. They're borrowing from the atheistic worldview. Mm-hmm. I wish I had actually come across this article while we were doing our segment yeah, on presuppositionalism. Yeah. Um, so to close up this segment, the article points out that, you know, even if the argument is wrong mm. and theism can't reconcile God's existence with our duty to prevent at least some suffering, theism still encourages a bizarre reverse triage. So the worse an innocent person's suffering, the more reason theism gives us for thinking that the suffering must be needed for the sufferer's own good. And hence, the less reason it gives us to prevent the suffering. So we ought to prevent mild suffering first and extreme suffering later. Right. Mason writes, far from shoring up our moral outlook, adding God to it turns it upside down. That's a little bit of atheistic presuppositionalism for you. Uh, <laughs> if you're interested in reading the article for yourself, we will uh, make sure to post a link to that paper because – Stephen Meissen is one of those good guys who has the vast majority of his, his published work available online. Rather than underlying belief in atheism, wouldn't that imply an underlying belief? What most religious people, theists do is attribute it not to 
the absence of God but to other powers and then they invoke it's the it's the devil that's causing suffering in the world and we have to fight the devil and so it actually invokes not God versus nothing it invokes a poly, polytheistic view of there oh, must right. be an evil force counter meaning counter yeah but so against God, God's God force. is all sovereign though so for God not to intervene yeah, and, and to thwart the devil's works the argument would still work in that way because God must be absolutely sovereign otherwise. Well, I know logically it doesn't make sense. Clearly it doesn't. Right. That's why I'm an atheist. <laughs> right. but what I'm saying is what religious people typically bounce back in the face of that is sure. the devil rules the world temporarily, causing suffering. We have to fight him as best we can and in the end God's going to make things right in some future state. Yeah, yeah so but, they, but of course that wouldn't um, – you know the compensation of that wouldn't justify God's non-intervening and non-thwarting of the devil's actions. Oh, well, I know that, but, do they, <laughs> but, but I'm just saying that it would seem that under a presupposition wouldn't be the absence of God, but I think they presuppose that in some the ways the devil, of the devil, the, the, the evil powers, or including the devil, are you know demons and such are co-equal with God, at least now they are, temporarily at least. They're co-equal okay. and there's a battle of good and evil going on and we have – that's why we should intervene is because we're not fighting against God. Because if you think about it, every time you pray against a tsunami or a tornado, you're asking God to contravene what he's clearly planning. So, right. so, okay, so the only way that would make sense is if Satan also had unlimited power. Because then you could yes. have a real legitimate. I think they think that he does. You could have a real legitimate uh, power mm. struggle there. They say their formal theological system is no, he can't because that wouldn't be right. But the right. way that they act in the world is that. Oh, he for does. sure. Yeah. Because that that why else would the evangelicals be so concerned with demons and exorcisms and and we have to pray the things away because they must on some level be assuming these are massive forces that we need to mobilize against. They're not assuming that's God's will. They're saying right. that we need to fight that thing. That's true. So I think that you know when you look at the people, the attributions that people make, when you ask them a formal statement of their theology, they'll give the party line. Right. But when you ask them about what attributions they're making about what actually happens, they appear to have a separate tacit belief system that differs from their formal belief oh, system. Oh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, when they're – when they have to be theologically articulate, they're going to – they're going to emphasize different things. Than if they're just talking in their prayer group yeah, about so the, you know about how you know uh, Susan lost a loved one and they're going to say certain things to to make them feel better and stuff. Usually, the first response to theodicy is that it's either free will an allowance of free will, so we have to have evil children suffering. B that 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 it's Satan causing the suffering and God doesn't want that to occur but that Satan does temporarily because he has domain in this world temporarily or something like right. that. Those are usually like the top two things that they mentioned to explain theodicy, mm-hmm. which, which would imply like we said, from our point of view, it would be like, well, why doesn't like God – He's has he lost control of Satan or something? Right, right, right. But they would say, well, that's – either it's temporary or whatever. Let's turn now to some props. Uh, on the props list this week, uh, this comes from the Christian Post, most Christian of all posts. <laughs> University was the dumbass. That's not funny. It's, I don't know why. I, laugh. <laughs> I know it's not. It's habit. Wisconsin University giving atheist group largest sum in funding. Um, not, by the way, the largest sum that they're giving any groups at the school, but the largest um, sum that any atheist group has ever been given. Uh, the Atheist, Humanists, and Agnostics, or AHA, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison is expected to receive 
$67,000 in money crap. allocated uh, by the school to help fund their meetings and other projects. Um, and that, if you want us to come and speak it to you. <laughs> yeah, hey, absolutely. Um, we'll, we'll do it for a, you know, compared to $67,000. Relatively small. We're cheap. We're real cheap. <laughs> But they said it's going to help pay for their efforts, um, including faith questioning and secular support groups. Um, they say uh, the executive director of the group, uh, Chris Kelvey, says that, quote, faith questioning is peer-to-peer religious advising service designed to help students struggling with their faith and to encourage all participants to develop their own religious identity. Secular support groups are discussion-based meetings for non-religious questioning or any students interested in discussing topics related to religion in a large group setting. So they're going to be putting that money to use. Now, it sounds like a lot of money to me. Mm-hmm. Um, at the the school I went to when we had our CFI group, I think when we finally managed to get funding, it was like under $500. Okay. And that was like for, you know, pizzas and for flyers and that sort of thing. Um, and that was about it. So this is a lot of money, but consider at, on the same campus, the Badger Catholic group, um, receives, uh, 116,000. So it's, Significantly more than the um, AHA will be getting. Badger Catholic. Wow. Yeah. Um, I was going to say how aptly named. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I, I have to say, though, um, not only am I putting this on the props list because it's good to see a group getting this much funding and hopefully they'll put it to good use, but the president of the Badger Catholic uh, group I think also deserves a mention here on the props list. His name is Jake Heka. He told the Christian Post that while he disagrees with the AHA's worldview, he respects their right to the funding. Quote, in light of God granting us free will to act and believe as we choose, Badger Catholic respects the beliefs of AHA and their conscious decision to believe as they choose. Going on, he says, my personal belief is that from a governance standpoint, one ideology has justification to be funded just as much as any other ideology awesome. should. Good guy. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that that is very good to see. This is a guy who obviously um, does not agree with the atheist, uh, humanist, and agnostics as far as their um, religious worldviews go. But um, he's saying personally, not as the group, but he's saying personally, why shouldn't we fund them right. just like we fund every other group? Now, of course, there's a difference in the amount of money, but a lot of that just comes down to what they request, too. Right, right. Um, and the budget has not been fully approved yet, but it looks like it's going to. And so that's an awesome thing. And if we have any listeners who are out there. Uh, we have a donate button. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> any listeners in the atheist, humanist, and agnostics group at University of Wisconsin-Madison, I'd love to hear from you and, and um, hear about how these projects of yours are going or uh, will be going. So um, get in touch with us if you're out there. And let's wrap up now with some polyatheism. Here in the United States, we are either just about to celebrate, are currently celebrating, or have just celebrated Thanksgiving, depending on exactly when this episode is released. 
Of course, if you're not listening to it right when it's released, but are, in fact, going through our archives some years in the future and just now hearing this for the first time, uh, first and foremost, I'd point out that uh, if you're complaining about the fact that this Thanksgiving-themed polyatheism segment is not as timely as you might have liked, why on earth did you sit through 30 minutes of us talking about the results of the 2012 election <laughs> in order to get here? And secondly, if you are listening to this episode in the distant future – Well, you, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, if you are listening to this um, in the distant future, I want to apologize for how badly screwed up your future world is. And He's planting future messages and, now. And <laughs> Dear overlords of the future. I want to let you know that we tried to do what we could to correct it. But frankly, there's only so much a humble podcast can do to stop a robot uprising. We tried. We tried. Hail to, to our future uh, overlords. That's right. <laughs> Reasonable Doubts, the religion podcast and time capsule. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, now, since many of our listeners are not from the United States, I thought a brief history lesson was in order. And actually, since many of our listeners are in the United States and are either intentionally or unintentionally ignorant of the history of this continent, you can listen up too. In 1620, a group of religious extremists traveled to what is now the state of Massachusetts so that they could freely practice their religion of repression without any of those damned Europeans back home telling them to mellow out. Believing firmly that God would provide for them, the separatists didn't provide much for themselves, and as a result, more than half of them died off in their first year from starvation and disease. Wait, did they, uh, did they apply for proper citizenship before they arrived? Well, if they had, this would be a very different story, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, luckily, Governor William Bradford made friends with the native Tisquantum, or as he's known popularly, Squanto. Squanto was made ambassador to the native peoples um, because, remarkably, he spoke English. Why did he speak English, you ask? Well, of course, because more than a decade earlier – Rosetta Stone. <laughs> yes, he was using the Rosetta Stone program, <laughs> if only. Uh, he had been kidnapped from his home by Spanish slave traders, sold to a monk in Spain who, to his credit, apparently treated him well and freed him from slavery and taught him Christianity. Squanto then wandered around Europe for a few years like a high school graduate with too much money and too little <laughs> ambition – Ending up in England where he learned the language and was promised a trip back to his home on the next available boat. The next available boat sailed back to Squanto's homeland ten years later. Apparently not a high priority. <laughs> uh, upon returning home, he found that his entire tribe had been killed off by smallpox or enslaved. He ended up living with the Wampanoag people and they eventually – and then eventually meeting up with Governor Bradford and his buckle-hatted brethren. After their first devastating winter, uh, the separatists decided that perhaps God helps those who help themselves, and Squanto showed them how to cultivate corn, catch fish, tie their shoes, program their VCR <laughs> so it would stop flashing 12, and other useful that. skills like that. Oh, yeah, Squanto, he, he had mad skills. Come November, the settlers and the – Wait, so Indians were the early version of tech support. <laughs> oh. Just Geek Pilgrims squad. just hit reset. No, the other – reset. Is it plugged What does your screen say now? <laughs> what are you looking at? Plant the corn. Plant it – no, in the ground. <laughs> you have to – Jesus Christ. You have to water it. 
Read the manual. Come November, the settlers <laughs> and the Wampanoag people, along with Squanto, sat down to a celebratory harvest feast. Not actually a Thanksgiving, we should point out, as those were usually celebrated with fasting. So this Thanksgiving, not really Thanksgiving. A um, hundred and two years later, President Daniel Day Lewis declared a <laughs> national day of quote Thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. Mostly because he knew modern atheists would be really smug about declaring the great emancipator a free thinker, and he wanted to throw in some crap like that just to undercut us. But enough about American mythology. Let's talk about native mythology of the people who were killed, enslaved, and or deprived of land by Americans. Specifically, um, those folks who brought most of the food to that first feast, the Wampanoag. The great hero of the Wampanoag was the giant Mashup. Mashup was responsible uh, for much of the geography of Massachusetts, in fact, including the town of Gayhead in Martha's Vineyard, where he created a crater by sitting and a deficit of trees by using them to cook the whales he caught with his bare hands. By the way, no, Gayhead is in Provincetown, Cape Cod. <laughs> Moving on, uh, he also created the island of Nantucket by dumping spent tobacco out of his pipe. Uh, so take that, Nantucket. Uh, Mashup also, by the way, is responsible for overlaying two seemingly unconnected musical tracks over each other, <laughs> I was just say. thereby bringing out and enhancing so themes. <laughs> And giving the writers of Glee something to make them feel clever. Uh, <laughs> I delight myself. While Mashup was a benevolent giant, friends of the Wampanoag people, on the other end of the spectrum were a race of tiny mischief makers known as the Pukwudgies. In their earliest form, Pukwudgies are a short, mostly harmless race, like less hairy Ewoks. They tried to help people out, but when you've got a giant on your side, who's going to ask a bunch of little imps for help? So after being ignored, they started to become a bit of a nuisance, like Jawas. They bugged Stealing your droids and selling them? Exactly. So terrible. They bugged Mashup's wife so badly that he scooped them up, shook them to make sure they were nicely brain damaged, and then tossed them around New England. <laughs> now the brain scrambled... Pugwudgies became evil and destroyed everything they touched, like Gungans. Or Gollum. No, but I'm saying Jar Jar Binks destroyed. Oh, you're Star sticking Wars. within that. Okay. I'm sticking within yeah. a Star, Star Wars, Wars framework. Sorry. You're trying to no Lord of the Rings. You're throwing it off here. It's Disney, by the way. Yeah, now owned by Disney. Um, insert Princess Leia joke here. Uh they then took to luring children out to the woods, kidnapping and killing them. They possessed powers of invisibility, teleportation, shape-shifting, and had magical weapons. All in all... Lightsabers. <laughs> these little monsters were more threatening to women and children than a Republican majority in the House. <laughs> the people came to mosh up and asked for help, but apparently he was feeling particularly lazy that day and instead sent his five sons to deal with the rampaging Pugwudgies, uh, who promptly killed all five sons. There are, of course, various accounts of the story. Uh, in some, the Pugwudgies also kill Mashup, 
Um, but in another, he simply grows depressed from the loss of his sons and walks off into the ocean. In a myth clearly written after the white man showed up and screwed up everything for the Wampanoag, before leaving, Mashup warns that white people will soon show up and screw up everything for the Wampanoag. While Mashup, the great hero of his people, is long gone, the Pogwajis are alive and well, at least in the field of paranormal investigation. We can actually trace much of the paranormal paranoia in the region to the legends of the Pogwajis. As Christianity took a greater hold, the Pogwajis became not heathen superstitions, but servants of the devil himself, and would lure people into the woods with evil intent. Demons. Of course, the idea of evil forces in the woods leads in part to the Salem witch hysteria, which in turn leads to a sustained and asinine interest in haunted locations in Massachusetts (laughs) and the surrounding area, which in turn leads to television shows like Ghost Hunters, hosted by either delusional or intentionally fraudulent asshats. Many paranormal and cryptozoological enthusiasts claim that the Pugwudgies are still out there. You can find websites that blame them for for everything from standing menacingly in the road to leading people to suicide and, of course, kidnappings. But while the Wampanoag uh, gave the settlers malicious little midgets to haunt their dreams, <laughs> the settlers gave the Wampanoag Christianity and very small plots, plots of land on reservations so that they could convert the rest of the area into resort towns for rich white people to live in in the summer. Put your quarters in this lot. Yeah. And it's those kinds of trading practices that make Thanksgiving a holiday we can celebrate as happily and as guilt-free as we do Columbus Day. So there you have it, the story of Mashup and the Pogwajis, a tale of a people abandoned by their guardian and left to the devious machinations of the diminutive demons and consequences of colonialism, and just one more myth worth not believing in. If you're like little people who are pissed off about being picked on, wouldn't you go to Massachusetts have a lot of fun by like <laughs> dressing up with with like a native garb or painting yourself black and standing in the road or like in the fringe of people's lawns and go like, yeah. I mean, you hear you hear little people actors complaining about how there there are no roles for them anymore because they do CG yeah, stuff. Apologies. I mean, you got you got Peter Dinklage, but otherwise, you can scare the crap out of all the tall yeah. people that have always picked on it's you. It's not just Christmas time now. Now you can get real acting work uh, out there as Pugwudgies out in the wilderness. I think this is a new trend that we need to <laughs> to see through. Um, so we'll keep working on that. And in the meantime, you can write to us with your comments, questions, challenges, etc. at doubtcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. And if you voted for us for the podcast awards, yes. we genuinely thank you. Yes, we thank you very much if you took the time to vote for us in the podcast awards, something that we were not very good at promoting. When did um, they announce that? They announced it in January, like January seventh yeah. or so. So well, I can still vote. They, they didn't no, tell us. The vote, we just happened the, to find out exactly. from a, a kind listener who wrote us. We didn't find out that we were up for it until about a week before the voting closed. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I tried to uh, I tried to send out daily notifications. Yeah, we, if you follow us on Facebook or Twitter, which you can do at slash doubtcast, you would have seen those notifications and hopefully. 
Hopefully we got some votes. Um, we did win this award a few years ago. so I want to um, win Supporting Actor this year. Yeah. I don't think um, we're up for that yet. Nominated in the Religious Inspiration category, which um, is delightful for us. Um, so thank you if you did go out and vote. There's two atheist win. podcasts. Yes. Uh, the other one is, is uh, Cognitive, Cognitive Dissonance. Cognitive right? yeah. yeah. So um, nice to see um, some representation yeah. there. But you can also, uh, along with Twitter and Facebook, you can check out our YouTube channel where you can see um, videos of um, various segments from the show and so forth. And um, that's going to do it for this time. We will be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.